let's look at Matt, at Mark 9. <clears throat> and as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And he asked them, Why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come to restore all things. How is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your providence in providing us with technology so that um, this can happen. And my prayer is that it happens well and that you work above and beyond this technology and uh, that you would be encouraging your people, uh, helping them to see more of who Jesus is and how he is for them and not against them that they would be trusting more and more of themselves to him this morning. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So uh, when we got engaged, <clears throat> Amy and I knew that having a child, well, shortly after we got engaged, uh, we learned that uh, having a child might be a little difficult. Uh, we had talked about this uh, and were open to adoption, uh, but Amy was diagnosed while we were engaged with Graves' disease. And so... Uh, Shortly before we were married, she had the radioactive iodine treatment, which burns out her thyroid. And because it's radioactive, we were unable to conceive. Uh, we were advised not to conceive for at least a year. So we had that. We're already older, and now it's a year. And, you know, there's a thyroid involved, and that's kind of important in conceiving a child. So we weren't sure if we were ever actually going to have a baby. And so it was uh, the... Spring of 2000, no, not 2000, 2004, I'm getting too old. Uh, spring of 2004 when Amy showed me the little pregnancy test and we were both excited about the fact that she had conceived. But we decided at that time not to tell anyone. Great news, but let's keep it to ourselves for a little while. And we'll get back to that in just a bit. The disciples have just gotten some fantastic news. Uh, they've seen Jesus transfigured or transformed uh, on the mountain. Uh, they've seen a glimpse of his glory that uh, his flesh veiled. And uh, what did Jesus want his disciples to do with this new information? And we're going to look at that from verse 9. Uh, this revelation was momentous. Okay, And, and the, the, the first thing that would come across my mind is, I gotta tell everybody about this, and that's exactly what Jesus uh, was concerned would happen. And so, what he does as they're coming down the mountain is that he charges them to tell no one what he had seen. So he, he issues an order. That's the, you know the idea of a charge. Uh, also, can have that do of a command, an order. Uh, Jesus is, is putting a bit of a damper on the joy that they had experienced, similar to how Amy and I put a little bit of a damper on the joy that we experienced with pregnancy. Uh, however, this moratorium that Jesus issues is not permanent, but is intended to be temporary. Uh, it isn't uh, simply to allow time for a fact check or anything like that that we're so familiar with today. Um, 
But Jesus does qualify when? Until the Son of Man has risen from or out of the dead. But when this happens, they were free to share. And so we had a similar sort of thing. Uh, we were not telling people until vacation because we wanted to be able to tell our parents in person. And we thought it would be a little unfair to tell all of our Florida friends what was going on before we told our parents. And it would complicate things. So we decided to wait. And we brought a picture of the, the sonogram and we were ready uh, to tell them when we went on vacation, uh, kind of in, I think it was August uh, that particular year because of the school year in Florida at the time. Okay. Well, in this case, it's not vacation. In this case, it's the rising of the Son of Man out of the dead. So Jesus reminds them that, he, that they must not speak of this glory to other people until the time when Jesus suffers and dies upon the cross and then rises out of the dead. Okay? The people, even the disciples, okay, have grossly misunderstood what Jesus would do as the Messiah. And we keep bumping up against this thing. And um, it shows us uh, sort of the slowness of mind and hardness of heart of not just the, the hoi polloi, uh, but also the disciples. So Jesus is again affirming what it really means for him to be the Messiah that he must suffer and that he must die and that he must rise out of the dead. This must all um, come before he receives and reveals his glory. And let's think about this for a moment. Let's think about it in terms of Romans 2. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. And so uh, Paul is reminding the Romans of God's character, the riches, okay, uh, the abundant wealth of his kindness, of his forbearance, and of his patience. And he speaks about the cross as his kindness that is meant to lead us to repentance. And so I think what this means for us is that we should understand more than simply the necessity of the atonement. We need to understand his kindness, forbearance, and patience that are at the root of that atonement. We need to recognize that Jesus does not do this reluctantly, but that Jesus does this willingly and joyfully, even though it is far less than pleasant. And so uh, Jesus is not a reluctant savior. Uh, Jesus indeed did come to sa seek and save the lost, wherever they might be. And the process of saving the lost has to do with his suffering upon the cross. And so we see a picture of this heart of Jesus that despite their wretched and uh, their wretched sinfulness rather, and their corruption, Jesus sets his love upon his people. 
And so I'm reading this book by Dane Ortland right now, and he talks a lot about this. And one of the sentences in the book that really kind of gripped me was, we need not only exhortation, but liberation. We need not only Christ as a king, but Christ as a friend. If we just have him as king, we will end up condemned. But if we have him as a friend, he rescues us from the danger that we are in. So just as Jesus was moved by compassion to the disease that he encountered, the people who, had, who were sick and suffering, Jesus, just as Jesus was moved to compassion by the disabilities and misery that he saw in many of the people he encountered, just as Jesus was moved uh, with compassion for those who were, were oppressed by demonic forces, in the same way, Jesus is moved by compassion in which, you know, the deepest part of you is the idea of the bowels. So the deepest part of him was moved with compassion towards those who are in sin. We tend to think of his wrath, and yet for those he has set his love upon, their sin moves him not with wrath, but with compassion. So, here's Jesus. Here's three witnesses. Do you ever wonder why it's three witnesses? And perhaps I should have mentioned this last week, but three witnesses, legal. On the testimony of two or three witnesses, uh, that was required before someone would um, suffer a penalty within the legal system of Israel. So um, they, they, they'll be able to share this story of his glory unveiled, and it would be legally acceptable because we had three witnesses until, anyway, James's death, and you still have two. Those two, Peter and John, would write of this in, his le in their letters, as we saw last week. Uh, they would declare it in person, and we see that in uh, the book of Acts. And so should we declare this glory, uh, as well as, of course, declaring this cross. And people won't always get it, but we must declare it nonetheless. So imagine this, we, we go up uh, to New York and we're so excited, uh, we're going to tell uh, first her, her family because we're staying with them, and so we're on her sister, sister Trina's back porch. And what I do is I take out the sonogram and I hand it to Daddy D and I say, look, it's a picture of your newest granddaughter. And he doesn't get it. <laughs> the only person who got it was Rob. Uh, all the rest of them, they, they, they didn't expect this. And we can expect a similar result when we first make known this reality about Jesus. Uh, as Ben Sassy said uh, on the floor of the confirmation hearings, there's a lot about Christianity that seems really odd. And what he should have said is to people who aren't Christians. And this idea of the glory of Jesus, as well as the suffering and rising from the dead, is really confusing to people who have no... Nothing, nothing to hang that hook on. So, since Jesus has risen, we are to tell people that he's the Messiah. Well, what did they actually do? And, you know, Jesus charges them, 
What did they do? Uh, we, we see this in verses 10 through 11. Remember, as we've been going through Mark's gospel, just about every time Jesus charges somebody to keep their mouth shut, they don't keep their mouth shut. They tell everybody in the universe uh, about what Jesus has done. And so um, we might expect this from the disciples. However, uh, Mark tells us that they kept the matter to themselves. And the NASB uh, translates that instead as seized it to themselves, uh, because this is, in fact, a rather forceful verb. One way we would think about this is they kept it close to the vest. Okay, that's, that's an idiom that we use that they didn't use. Okay, but it gets that same thing. You're holding it tightly. You're not telling anybody, you know. Um, in Seinfeldian terms, it would be they put it in the vault. Uh, never to be spoken of again, of course, unfortunately, uh, Jerry knew that Elaine's vault, everybody knew the combination. So <laughs> Elaine was not very safe, uh, but the disciples, it's safe. It's locked up. They've seized it. They're holding it tight in their hands. They're not going to let everyone know, anyone know. But that's not the whole story. That's only part of the story. They were questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. Once again, the disciples, this time only the three of them, still don't understand what Jesus means when he talks about rising out of the dead. Okay? <clears throat> this is the second time we've seen it, and we're going to keep seeing it for a little while. But let's note that as good conservative Jews, these three men believed in the resurrection at the end of time. Okay? Places like Isaiah 26 your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy. For your dew is a dew of light, and the earth will give birth to the dead. That's Isaiah 26, uh, 19. We see also Daniel 12, verses 2 and 3. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. So we have this picture of the brightness of the resurrection for for the righteous. Okay? As good Jews, they've heard this, and presumably, they actually believed it. But it doesn't connect. There's some dissonance for them, because their understanding of the Son of Man is one of glory. Their understanding of the Messiah is one of glory. And the resurrection is at the end, not kind of in the middle. And so they're wondering, what in the world does Jesus mean? And there's probably times that you've thought something just like that. What in the world does Jesus mean? What is he talking about? And th they struggled with this reality. They struggled with their questions. And we also struggle to understand Scripture. And the point for them and the point for us is where do we go with our questions? Right? Where? 
Well, this time they did the right thing and they brought a different question to Jesus. <laughs> it's a related question. They didn't actually get, you know, directly at what was bugging them. Uh, they're, they're kind of going around the, the corner, you know, beating around the bush, so to speak, to get at this. And so they asked this question to Jesus. Why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? This is sort of a, you know, sneaky way of asking the question, as I said. And it kind of takes them off the hook because, you know, they're talking about the scribes. They're not really saying, hey, Jesus, we don't get this. Okay. The scribes taught that Elijah would come before the Messiah in order to restore the people of God and then would be the end. So a very quick kind of thing. Here's Elijah, here's Messiah, here's the end. Boom, boom, boom. Okay? And they were wrong because there were gaps of time between the coming of Messiah and the end. Okay? The three disciples may have been confused even further by the fact that they had just seen Elijah on the mountain with Jesus even though they hear him talking about this Exodus thing. What in the world is that? So, we can see how they would be confused. Because Jesus here, the truth is challenging their preconceptions. And that gets back to that cognitive dissonance. Okay? Sometimes we try to squeeze the truth into our preconceptions, as opposed to let the truth change our preconceptions. Which are you doing? You're trying to squeeze it in there? Or you're going, wow, wait a minute. I gotta rethink this. Jesus, help me to understand this. Okay? <clears throat> the resurrection would likely, as I said, mean the end of time in their minds. And they haven't seen Elijah come yet. I mean, they saw him in the transfiguration, but they haven't seen him on earth yet. They haven't seen him purify all things yet. And so they're very confused. And like them, we struggle to put scripture together in its proper context. And part of that is eschatology. Okay. How many of us wrestle with eschatology? I know my journey with eschatology was kind of long. Um, you know, I, I started as a brand new Christian and working in a bookstore, a uh, normal bookstore, and um, not knowing what was good or what was bad, and bought some Hal Lindsey books and was really into this Hal Lindsey thing. And uh, then the more I was reading scripture, the more I'm going, this isn't making sense. So I had a choice. Was I going to squeeze so that the scripture fit my preconceptions? Or was I going to allow the scriptures to change my pre preconceptions? Okay? And so, I believe anyway, the scripture changed my preconceptions. And now I hold a different eschatological position than Hal Lindsey. Uh, which one is not important to us at this point in time, but just that's just an illustration of how this process happens. Are we going to let Scripture speak, or are we going to keep trying to squeeze it into our preconceptions and assumptions?
which may not fit. And so, apart from Jesus, we struggle to understand the scriptures. That's the bottom line for us. Apart from Jesus, we struggle to understand the scriptures. So, what did they understand about Elijah and the Son of Man? And what were they supposed to understand about Elijah and the Son of Man? And Jesus really gets at this in verses 12 and 13. Jesus starts with the positive, and this is actually a fairly difficult passage to, to grasp, um, interpret, exegete, all that fun stuff. Um, so there's a bit of, bit of interpretation in the translation. Elijah does come first to restore all things. And so he says, essentially, the scribes are sort of right about that. Elijah does come first. Jesus is affirming uh, Malachi 4. Uh, he's affirming uh, that the scribes were right to affirm that Elijah, can't say his word this morning, uh, would come first. That Elijah is, in fact, going to begin this restoration, but Elijah does not complete the restoration. Messiah must. And that's where the scribes have gone wrong and therefore where the disciples have gone wrong. And so Jesus poses a question to them in the very historic, uh, historical rabbinic tradition. How is it written? of the Son of Man, that he should suffer many things. In other words, if Elijah comes first and everything is hunky-dory, then how in the world is it that when, when the Son of Man comes, it goes poorly for him, he suffers? Okay, do you understand what Jesus is getting at? If Elijah's fixed everything, how is it that Messiah suffers? And we find this repeated you know, this idea, Paul repeats it, 1 Corinthians 15, that he was buried and he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And so we find that in a number of places, uh, including one of the Psalms that I read this week and talked about in uh, on the back porch with Steve. But we also find it in Isaiah 53 and many other uh, messianic passages. So accordance with the scriptures. The restoration would end up requiring the sin-bearing suffering of the Messiah. Otherwise, we'd all be condemned. And so Jesus continues, I tell you that Elijah has come. See, in Matthew's gospel, Jesus identifies who Elijah was. And he identifies John as Elijah two times. We see this in Matthew 11. Uh, For all the prophets in the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Similarly, in Matthew 17, which is Matthew's telling of this particular uh, story that we have in Mark, I tell you that Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. The Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. So, Elijah didn't simply appear. John 
came in the spirit of Elijah to fulfill the role of, of Elijah, preparing the way for Jesus, the Messiah who comes to suffer. Okay? And they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. In other words, it was written that John would suffer too, or Elijah would suffer. That along with all the prophets, he too would suffer. John suffered and lost his life for Christ and the gospel. Okay? But it wasn't just John and it wasn't just Jesus. The disciples were also going to suffer and some of them lose their lives for Christ and the gospel. And that, of course, is the message uh, that Jesus had just given to them uh, in response to the trans, uh, the, no, not just to them, but <coughs> uh, to the great confession that he had made at the end, that Peter had made uh, at the end of chapter 8. You know, if you're going to follow me, you have to deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. Okay? That we will suffer. So, you know, let's get, get back to pregnancy for just a little bit. It wasn't all joy, joy, happy, happy. Or, in the words of Ellis Huxley, happy, happy, joy, joy. Uh, there were trials that were there beyond the usual morning sickness, which in our case was evening sickness. Uh, so I would come home from work and uh, she would hide in the bedroom while I cooked dinner for me, not for her, because she couldn't eat because she didn't feel well. Uh, but we went to a subsequent ultrasound and... The person administering that ultrasound scared the living daylights out of us uh, because something was wrong, <coughs> that, that uh, Jaden was not big enough. Uh, there was something that was restricting her growth. Uh, but, you know, and this is why they don't want the text telling you something. Uh, it sounded a lot worse than it actually was, but we couldn't get a higher level ultrasound with the specialist until the next day. Because it was already, you know, mid to late afternoon. So we spent a horrible night wondering if we would ever see our little girl. Tossing and turning, uh, it was a difficult night for both of us. Uh, there, was, there were prayers in there and, and, and all, all kinds of things going on. And fortunately, we, we discovered that while she was not as big as she should be, it was um, still within, uh, you know, acceptable uh, regions or ranges. And that it probably meant that we would have to uh, have her induced when the time came uh, because, well, her body probably wouldn't tell her it was time when it was time. So, um we're going to suffer. The good news can bring us suffering. And we need to reckon with that. We see Paul talking about the fact that he suffered, but not just that he suffered, which he talks about in many places, but it was filling up what was lacking in Christ's suffering. I remember I was at a retreat and we were talking about Colossians and I was, you know, kind of gotten off and was reading uh, some of the material and, I, and I, I stumbled on this. How is it that Paul can 
fill up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, the church. Didn't Jesus suffer everything necessary for our salvation? And the answer to that question is absolutely. Paul is not adding to the atonement of Christ. What Paul is doing, and what we see here when he talks about it in Colossians 1.24, is that he's suffering to bring the gospel of the sufficiency and the fullness of Christ's sufferings for our sin to the people. And so the, 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 the bearers of the message experience suffering. So, uh, we see as well the reality, again, of the prophets that suffered, the prophets that were killed. Uh, and we have to, to honestly recognize that all who want to follow Jesus will suffer. And that is precisely what Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 3. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. So we're focusing more on the godly people. If you're wanting to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, that is a good and great thing, but you need to recognize that you will be persecuted because your godly life will convict ungodly people of their godlessness. And they don't want to be reminded that they will be held accountable for that. So, there you see the process uh, by which we who seek to live good, upright lives by the grace of God often experience suffering as a result because we're reminding people that they're in big trouble. And because there's still the image of God in them, they recognize they're in big trouble. <coughs> All who want to follow Jesus will suffer. And so John, Jesus and John suffered in accordance with the scriptures, and you will too. So a big idea, if we kind of take all these threads, I think is that all who cherish Christ crucified will suffer for him. Well, sometimes we don't share good news right away. Sometimes we want to do it in person. Sometimes we don't want to be misunderstood. In this instance, Jesus did not want to be misunderstood, and he knew that he was. Their expectations and their eschatology needed to be changed, and that takes time. And so Jesus is laying brick upon brick upon brick to change their presuppositions, to change their assumptions, to change their, uh, uh, I forget the word I used earlier, <laughs> the preconceptions. That takes time. It takes time with you. And so we should be glad that Jesus is immensely patient with us while these changes take place. And Jesus invites us to be patient with others as that change takes place. So let's pray. Father, thank you uh, for this time. And uh, despite the technological uh, problem uh, 
and my lack of foresight regarding that problem, uh, we ask that you would work um, despite this for the good of your people, for the glory of your name, uh, that we would um, recognize that there are places our theology needs to change, and we thank you that you are patient in that process with us, and help us to recognize that there are others we know whose theology needs to change, and that you are patient with them, and so should we be. Be gracious to us, and revealing more and more of the truth to us as we go through this book of Mark, including not just a suffering Savior, but a joyful suffering Savior. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.